volume one of season four of Stranger Things is out, and I've got my thoughts right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to my review of Stranger Things 4, Volume 1, because no show can be just one season anymore. You've got to split it up over multiple parts, and it makes it hard to come to a final judgment. I can't really on the season so far because we still have two episodes left that are set to come out in just over a month, July 1st. It's more my thoughts of what we've seen so far as far as characterization and the group dynamics and stuff, and I'm going to split it into two different parts. There will be a non-spoiler part here at the beginning, and then I'll be getting into spoilers spoilers, which will be much more extensive, and the lion's share of this video. And if you're wondering why there was this division, there are the creative issues that were brought up uh, with the Duffer Brothers saying that they just wanted to work on the supersized finale and get the other ones out. It's also probably not hurtful to Netflix that this means that this season of Stranger Things spans two different Emmy-nominating windows because the deadline is May 31st, so these seven episodes that we've already seen will be eligible for the Emmys this year, and the last two episodes will be eligible for the Emmys next year. Better Call Saul is doing something similar. Something else kind of behind the scenes that I wonder about with this season is if they had an Arrested Development type issue, particularly the first season after Netflix picked up the show. They split everybody apart because the cast was very busy doing movies and stuff, and the only way they could do the season is if they did it in little pods. And we saw this with Stranger Things this season. The cast was never really all together they were all kind of split up into little groups and of course that means that you can shoot with this group and not need to have cast members from this group on set i do think that this hurt the group dynamic and it's been something that was one of my favorite things about stranger things from the very beginning and the fact that you splinter everybody off you don't get to build those relationships between a lot of the characters that have been around from the beginning if it was a consideration as far as availability i wish they could have figured out a little bit better story reasons or a little bit better schedule to get people together more if it's just because how they wanted to structure the story for this season, and I'll go into it more in the spoiler part, I think that you lost a little bit by keeping everybody separated for so much of this season so far. One thing that the show continues to have going for it, though, is that I think it is incredibly well made, just on a technical level. I think it's well directed. I think that the effects largely are good. There was one effect late in the series, and I can't show it here while I'm not talking about spoilers, but it involved a big reveal that happened that kind of took me to the not-so-great era of the 1990s CGI. But other than that, I think the show has always looked fantastic uh, when you come to cinematography, uh, most of the special effects, and even just when you plan out how the show is going to look. There's a great shot later in the series where you have uh, you know, a group of kids uh, up in Hawkins riding a bicycle, and the camera just kind of goes in one unbroken shot down to the upside down, and you catch the group that's down there riding their bikes. It's that kind of thinking that I think really keeps this show fresh, and no matter what my story considerations might be with this season, it still remains top level technically, and you can see the money that they're spending on this show on screen. But Stranger Things' main asset continues to be its cast, the adult actors that have been there since the beginning, and then the younger actors. I think they got very lucky because they cast a lot of young actors that have grown into really strong performers. Millie Bobby Brown, as she's been from the beginning, is a standout as Eleven. She had a lot to do this season, a lot of heavy lifting to do, all of this exploration of her past, and she never disappointed on a performance level. Sadie Sink, I thought, was really good as Max, who's featured very prominently in the first few episodes before she kind of has to take a back seat in the last few. Let's talk about Noah Schnapp because I think this guy just keeps getting the short end of the stick. Will Byers has had, maybe next to 11, the toughest road of any main character or really any character period 
on this entire show. And there's a lot of interesting things that you could do with his character, and yet the show keeps on not doing them. Will just kind of seems to be stuck in this role of the like the neglected friend slash outcast, and Noah Schnapp does great with what he's given, but I think that Stranger Things really has yet to give Will Byers his due. When you look at the other core four guys, the Ghostbusters, if you will, Gaten Matarazzo continues to come into his own as Dustin. His comic timing, particularly in this season, was on point. Caleb McLaughlin, despite being the most obvious case of an aging issue uh, that we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, really excels in the early and then later episodes as Lucas, as he finds himself trapped between two worlds. Ironically, I think it's the breakout of the bunch, which is Finn Wolfhard as Mike, who really has the smallest role to play so far this season. I don't really think anything he's done so far has had much impact on the show whatsoever in season four, although there's still time for that to change. Joe Keery, Maya Hawk, and Natalia Dyer get some solid group time together as Steve, Robin, and Nancy. And then we have a solid new addition to the show, which is Joseph Quinn as Eddie Munson, who overcomes looking the actual actor's age of almost 30 to turn what I thought was a really one-note character at first into a very sympathetic addition to the group. And I'll talk a little bit more about him later. Everybody else, including Winona Ryder and David Harbour, definitely has their part to play. But for me to really get into it, then I'm going to have to start getting into spoiler territory for the season. So let's dive into what I liked and what I think needs some improvement as we look at what I thought was an enjoyable but uneven volume one for the fourth season. I attend all the customers equally, babes and non-babes alike. Okay, so I mentioned before that I think the show has an aging problem. When you look at real time and then show time, Stranger Things, the show started in November of 1983. We're now in spring of 1986, which means in universe, less than three years have passed. The problem here is, is that you had a group of kids that were around 13, 14, playing, you know, between 11 and 13, which isn't so bad. You now have a cast that's nearly 20 playing 15. And when you have actors like Caleb McLaughlin, who basically became an adult in the three years since the last season, it's only supposed to have been six months. I can give the show a little bit of credit because it is a real world problem that a lot of shows that cast kids have to deal with, but it's becoming pretty pronounced and not just in the younger cast members. You have the older actors who were in their early 20s when they started the show, a lot of them now pushing 30, but they're still playing 18 year old high schoolers. Some of them can pull them off, but then you have an actor like Charlie Heaton, and this isn't a knock on him, but the guy looks like a teacher at school. He doesn't look like he should actually still be in high school. Parts of it are, yes, unavoidable, but I do think that perhaps the writers should have taken this into account a little bit more, maybe added in a little bit extra time in those time jumps. I got over it as the season went on, but I do think if I start watching these seasons all in a row, binging them uh, once Stranger Things is wrapped up, which I'm sure I'll do at least once, it's going to stand out even more. So I was talking about earlier about the splintering of the group and how it was one of my least favorite things about the parts of this season that we've seen so far. So let's kind of take on each little pod one by one. And we'll start with what I call the California crew, which is Jonathan Byers, Will Byers, Mike, who's visiting from Hawkins, and then Jonathan's stoner friend Argyle, who's played by an actor named Eduardo Franco. I haven't seen Eduardo Franco's entire filmography, but from what I have seen, it seems like casting directors really like to have him play this exact role. And that's not to say he wasn't good or he wasn't funny, because he had some pretty good lines throughout the season. Is it the risotto? Everyone hates the risotto. Absolutely not. Mm -mm. No, it's incredible. 
I already talked about Will kind of taking a backseat continually on this show, which is very odd because it seems like just looking at social media and everything that Noah Schnapp has a very dedicated fan base. And there's one thing in particular that it's really starting to feel like they're baiting us on. And that is Will's sexuality. There has long been speculation that he might be gay. The show kind of keeps dropping hints as to that. Elle's not stupid. It's not my fault you don't like girls. But at some point, it feels like they're just enjoying the spoils of having the online conversation without actually doing the character work to make this a meaningful part of Will Byers character or not doing it. I think it's just scary to open up like that, to say how you really feel, because what if what if they don't like the truth? As a group, the four of them pretty much just kind of spin their wheels for most of the season. Their plot is basically on the run, which does start off really well. I love that scene where the government storms the buyer's house. I thought it was shot really well. It was very visceral. It was unexpected. It really got this portion of their story off to a great start. But it all leads to what I thought was kind of this pointless side quest to go to Utah and visit Dustin's girlfriend who lives in a daycare facility? Is there a kid's birthday party going on? It was all very odd. It just They basically just have to go to someone to know how to get to Eleven when you could from a story level, unless you're trying to figure out what to do with these characters for a few episodes while Eleven does her training thing. It just seems like they're trying to occupy their time. And for some of the main characters on the show, it seemed like a very weird choice. It's a unique numerical label given to all information technology connected to the internet. What's the internet? Don't worry about it. It's just gonna change the world. I was actually thinking back on these last episodes and the whole Utah thing takes up episode five and six for the crew and then they are completely absent from the last episode in this volume. So when you're returning to the last two episodes, they're not even really fresh on your mind because there was so much other quote unquote more important stuff going on in that seventh episode that there wasn't even room for them. We also have two of the main romances on the show, Mike and Eleven and Jonathan and Nancy, that the show has spent a lot of time on over the season and that hasn't really been addressed too much so far this year. Mike and Eleven has been somewhat approached. We have this intimation that maybe Mike is afraid of Eleven and her ability they talk a little bit about the distance between them and that Mike's not really able to fully commit to this relationship. You don't love me anymore? Who, who said that I didn't? You never say it. I say it. But then Eleven splits from the group before a whole lot more can be said about it, and maybe that's something we're going to see in these last two episodes. And then we have Jonathan and Nancy, which even less time is spent on. We have a couple of conversations, Jonathan talking about the pressure he feels and he doesn't want to go to college with Nancy. Because if I told her the truth, then she'd just, she'd just throw her dreams out the window to come out here and be with me. Nancy talks about the distance that she's feeling from Jonathan and doesn't quite know what's going on. It's because I've been feeling I'm pulling away lately and, and, and I don't know if it's because we're 2,000 miles away or if he met someone new or what. But the thrust of this season really does seem to be rekindling this romance between Nancy and Steve Harrington who's played by Joe Keery and I wonder if part of it is the writers getting together and saying maybe these are the two that we should have put together. I don't know if it's for a story reason or if it's for some sort of a real life chemistry reason but it really does seem like they're rethinking their choices on romance and sort of edging back into this Nancy-Steve partnership. But maybe this is all just a red herring. It could be that they've got something
something up their sleeves in these final two episodes. But both of these romances, it did feel odd to sort of mention and then sideline for much of this season. So our second little pod is what I'll call the Russia crew. We have Hopper, who's in a Russian prison. We have Joyce and we have Murray, who are going to save Hopper. And yes, Hopper is alive. We knew that because of the trailers really going into the season. How did Hopper survive? He went, you know, down there. He was just down there. Uh, everything blew up and we thought he was gone, but no, he was fine. He was just, you know, down there. But he is in a Russian prison and Murray and Joyce fly off with a crazy Russian pilot to pay ransom money to get him out of jail. Their plan was to pay off this prison guard who is Jack and Hagar from Game of Thrones. Yes, that's that's who that is. It took me a while too. Uh, a man has no name. But all the plans go sideways. Joyce and Murray crash in the plane and have to sneak into the prison to get Hopper out. And Murray has to impersonate the Russian pilot and Hopper has to fight a Demogorgon. And I've got to be honest, the whole Hopper in prison and really the whole Russia storyline never really grabbed me this season. When we got to episode four and he made his escape via snowmobile, I was actually pretty happy because I'm like, okay, great. We can leave all this stuff behind and we can see what's going to happen next with this character. And then he ends up getting recaptured and just stays in the Russian prison for the whole first volume of the season. Also, did anybody else wonder how Hopper could be so mobile on an ankle that was basically pulverized? I mean, a very strong looking Russian man, like misery style, hit this guy's ankle multiple times there was a very grody scene where he's like taking the thing off his ankle like you can hear the bones crunching in it and yet like he doesn't even have a limp he's running around when he's escaping which like okay sure maybe that's adrenaline but we go several days past this point and he's just you know kind of walking around stealing demogorgon supplies I've had a light sprain on my ankle before, and I was basically immobile for two or three days. Now, granted, Hopper is about eight times the man that I am, but even given that, when I was watching this, I was like, how did, am I missing something? Does he have adamantium ankles? Is Hopper a superhero? But the actors are the saving grace of this show, and I'll probably say it more than one more time as this review goes on. And so the only thing that really did keep me hooked and keep me from completely checking out was David Harbour. He had some great scenes. I liked it when he was sort of sitting there talking about being in Vietnam and thinking that he was a curse to everybody that knew him. I wasn't cursed. I am the curse. Winona Ryder is also great. She's been great in the show from the first season. Brett Gelman, who plays Murray, has some great moments in this season. He's really funny when he has to impersonate Yuri the Russian. It's the commitment from these actors. It's their charisma. And it's the fact that they've been written in the past as sympathetic characters and are still written well as characters, even if I don't like their storylines, that kept me on board for most of this season, honestly. But other than Joyce and Murray being with Hopper, we literally leave him in the same place where we started the season. They're in the Russian prison it seems like they're going to escape but i think they're also going to be stranded in russia so that's a problem and there's a demogorgon running around the russian prison so that's also definitely going to be a problem for somebody down the road all i will say is that if they get captured again and they all three spend the rest of this season in the russian prison i will probably throw something at the television the best stuff this season, though, happens in Hawkins, which is where I think the heart of this show has always really been. And you have this battle against the big bad for this season, Vecna. And I actually really dug Vecna as this season four big bad. The only time I really started to fall off that train was when they started connecting him to the first three seasons. We'll go a little deeper into that. But I want to start with Max, who's played by Sadie Sink. I mentioned earlier, I actually really enjoyed her arc in these first few episodes as she's dealing with 
with Billy's death and her guilt and grief from that. Also, the fact that she seems to be cursed by Vecna and may soon be killed by him. The fourth episode, Dear Billy, I think was the best of the season, and she was a big reason why. And everything kind of culminates in the scene where she's sitting at Billy's grave and reading this letter to him. And Sadie Sink played that scene beautifully because she wasn't just playing sad and crying, which is not easy to do, by the way. She was playing sad but it's a character who doesn't like being sad. And you could tell like she hated that she was crying. And so it's almost playing two very complex and conflicting series of emotions on top of each other. And I was really impressed with how she was able to layer that scene. I think that maybe a part of me died that day too. And I haven't told anyone this. I know how music licensing works, so I'm sure that Stranger Things paid Kate Bush to use the song Running Up That Hill, but it really does feel like Kate Bush should have been paying them because it is born anew. I just checked right before I started recording this review. It is now one of the 10 most downloaded songs on iTunes. I think there are a lot of people from many different generations that had never quite heard an obscure 1985 Kate Bush song, uh, but that's gonna be on a lot of playlists from now on. One of the other top 10 hits right now on iTunes is Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone because of Top Gun Maverick opening this weekend. Big weekend for a resurgence of 80s hits. I'd also like to say that I'm glad that Max had pretty good taste in music and was not a big fan of the number nine song the week that Running Up That Hill peaked on number 30 on Billboard's Hot 100 because that would have been a very different scene. After episode four, we don't touch base with Max as much. The focus turns a lot more toward Vecna and the investigation by the Scooby gang, I guess, of Hawkins. I like to call them HVU, the Hawkins Victims Unit. Max does seem to be somewhat recovering from her ordeal already, and I thought it was a really funny beat when Steve is getting ready to dive into the lake when Max asks for the binoculars and then is totally just checking out Steve Harrington shirtless on a boat. Lucas had a really interesting story in the early part of the season that I don't really think was developed as much as it could have been because I like this position that he's in. He's on the basketball team and he's stuck in this world between his popular friends, the jocks, if you will, and his very, very not popular friends. Has it ever occurred to you that we don't want to be popular? So you want to be stuck with the nerds and freaks for three more years? We are nerds and freaks. Yeah, but maybe we don't have to be. That's already an interesting social dynamic. And then you add the fact that the jocks are going after the D&D club and he has to choose what he's going to do. And I thought that this might be something that they extended out pretty much throughout the entire season. But instead, Lucas runs back to his old friends pretty quickly. And I think it was something where you set up some pretty big stakes and didn't really do a whole lot of follow through on that. But he did win the state championship for Hawkins, which if this were the Teen Wolf homage 80s version of Stranger Things would have been the highlight of the season. So that's great for Lucas. Also, I thought that we learned this lesson after last season, but apparently, at least through these first seven episodes, uh, nobody's been listening. We need more Erica Sinclair in this show. She is a wonderful character. She's only in a few scenes, and she is great. So maybe in these next two episodes, but as we go into what's being billed as the final fifth season of Stranger Things, 
More Erica. She's awesome. Another week of this and he's buying me a goddamn Nintendo with Duck Hunt. I think the core, though, for this entire season is this group in Hawkins that's investigating the paranormal activities. I like that they're solving mysteries through very era-appropriate 1980s means, like trying to track somebody down through their video rental history. Rick Lipton, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Cheech and Chong's next movie, Cheech and Chong's Nice Dreams. Up in smoke. Bingo. I also just love the chemistry that these actors have, both as a group and then individually with each other. This season, we get some great Steve Robin stuff. Boobies! Say boobies! Not a big deal, okay? I like boobies. You like boobies. Vicky likes boobies! Some great Robin Nancy stuff. Little Petey McHugh. You know Petey. Right, Ruth? Uh, of course. Yeah. Little Petey McHugh. Some great Steve Nancy stuff. The obvious things are not what people observe or don't observe or Sherlock Holmes uh, uh. what and then Dustin with just about anybody there's a gate down there it's technically a water gate water gate and of course, the big objective of all this time in Hawkins is to find Vecna. And let's focus on him a little bit from the non-11 point of view, because I did really dig him throughout most of this season. I thought he was a very creepy villain. The murders were very ring-like, uh, but also just grotesque enough to be scary. And minus the basketball player who gets killed in the last couple of episodes, I also like that you kind of got to know who these victims were. So you cared somewhat, at least, that they were getting killed and knew a little bit about their background. I also think Vecna's creature design was on point. It was kind of a Freddy Krueger meets Swamp Thing deal. And the parallels to Freddy Krueger are also very real. He haunts kids in a small town suburb. He has his own lair, which I have named Upside Downton Abbey. And he likes taunting his victims, which actually gets super Freddy-like in the seventh episode when Nancy goes into one of these trances and ends up in the pool where Barb was kidnapped. Do you remember what you did, Nancy? It probably feels very Freddy because Nancy shares a name with Heather Langenkamp's character in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. We even see a Freddy Krueger cutout in the video store. The show name drops Freddy at one point. Like Freddy Krueger's boiler room. Freddy Krueger? He's a super burned up dude with razors for fingers and he kills you in your dreams. Dustin, seriously? And this kind of stuff makes me wonder and I love pondering these questions in my head because I'm weird. On the drive back from the asylum, because Nightmare on Elm Street exists inside the Stranger Things universe, did Robin and Nancy talk about the fact that Victor Creel bore a striking resemblance to Freddy Krueger actor Robert England? Robert England, by the way, what a great idea to get as a guest star on this show. Perfect for the 80s vibe of Stranger Things. I wasn't quite sure who he was until he said his first line of dialogue, and I immediately knew that voice. And I think he gave a really good performance. It was a very creepy character, and I loved what he brought to it. Followed her only to find myself in a nightmare far worse. And then we have the new addition to the gang, who's Eddie Munson. And I'm going to be 100% honest here. I was not really sold on him at the beginning of the season. Part of it is that he very much looks like the almost 30 years old that the actual actor is. He looked more like a 21 Jump Street narc than a high school student, even though they established that he was held back a couple years. The performance was also just very broad at the beginning, and I didn't find a whole lot to latch on to. But as Eddie grew more desperate and going on the run for these murders that he didn't commit and finding these new friends, I really began to like him more and more. You're asking me to follow you into Mordor, which 
I'm totally straight with you. I think it's a really bad idea. But uh, the Shire is burning. And as Eddie kind of dropped the facade that he showed to everybody else in Hawkins, I think the performance got a lot more relatable, and I liked that more as well. I was distracted by the fact that it looked like his hair was a very bad wig, but to be fair, a lot of real hair in the 1980s also looked like it was a very bad wig, so I'll give the show a pass on that. Eddie Munson also gave the show a believable avenue to explore something that actually happened nationwide in the 80s and going into the 90s, which was something called the Satanic Panic, this very suburban belief that things were corrupting the youth of America and turning them into devil worshippers. When I was 9 or 10 years old, the infamous West Memphis murders took place just a couple of hours from here, and I very clearly remember the news stories and the PTA meetings and everybody talking about the fact that these kids, they were in to dungeons and dragons and satanism it was all about the occult so this was not a stretch for the show to take this turn this was very very true to america at this time i think the idea of hawkins being whipped up into an evil dies tonight mob is an interesting one they've certainly gone through so much i can see why people would be so fed up and willing to kind of follow this logic down even if it's accusing kids of these heinous murders we don't really get a lot of resolution on the storyline but we don't get a lot of resolution on much because there's so much left in these last couple episodes. So we covered just about everything else. Let's talk about Eleven, because in many ways she's at the core of the show this season, and Millie Bobby Brown continues to show why I think that she is headed for superstardom above and beyond her role as Eleven, just in the entertainment industry long after this show's done. She's great in this role, and this season was rough on Eleven. I mean, it seemed like she was required to cry in just about every scene, and Millie Bobby Brown nailed all of them. And it really hurt to watch Eleven at the beginning of this season. On a character level, it made total sense. She was raised in pretty much isolation in this weird lab. She has been removed from her only friends, her only friend group, when the buyers moved from Hawkins to California. She's endured tragedy that is unspeakable to most of her peers, but that she can't really tell any of them about. And so, yes, it makes complete sense that Eleven is not going to do well in school, and she's going to be awkward, and she's going to be bad at socializing. I think an instantly popular Eleven, or even when that fit in would have been very emotionally gratifying, but less honest. But even given that, my God, the bullies in this show, Angela is one of the most infuriating characters that I've seen in a very long time. And I know that she's supposed to be, but there were so many times in those first few episodes where I just wanted to climb through the TV screen and like, I'm not a dad, but I wanted to like put on my dad voice and be like, young lady, what do you think you're doing? Look at this girl. Do you really want to add more torture to her life? Like, I just, I, I wanted to lecture Angela personally. And it really is such a nightmare, this cruelty, the idea that these kids are being so cruel that you have adults who are unable or unwilling to help you. I was bullied in middle school, certainly not to the degree that Eleven was, but I know a little bit of what that feeling is like. And so even though it is realistic and I hate to say it understandable as to why the show took this turn, that doesn't mean that it was easy to watch because it was not. Also, Angela gets the most flack for her bullying of Eleven, and deservedly so, but there's somebody else that I want to point out, and that's the roller rink DJ. This next song is dedicated to Jane, 
The local snitch. That dude sucked. I mean, at least the other ones you could say are middle school kids. This is an adult who basically gleefully participated in the humiliation of an innocent teenage girl who was clearly in distress. I really hope that DJ gets called to Hawkins to like DJ a wedding and gets eaten by a demigorgon or like killed by Vecna or something because he should know better. I know we're supposed to be rooting for Angela's comeuppance and I was kind of just hoping that Eleven's powers would come back and she'd make Angela like, you know, pee her pants like she did that bully in the first season of Stranger Things. The thing with the skate in the face, like I was not sitting there pumping my fist when that happened. I really think unpleasant would be the word that I would use to describe a lot of what was going on with Eleven in this season. That doesn't mean bad, it just means unpleasant. I didn't really enjoy watching it. And you don't have to enjoy watching every part of every show. There are different emotional responses that you're engineered to have. But when you have Eleven, who's just so innocent and so kind of helpless in many ways, ironically, even though she has or had all of these powers, oh, your heart just breaks for her. So after getting arrested for this roller assault on Angela, Eleven gets picked up by Dr. Owens. Always great to see Paul Reiser in just about anything. And then we get the reveal, it was actually revealed a couple seasons ago, but the confirmation that Papa, Dr. Brenner, is still alive, played by Matthew Modine, who has been able to survive a demigorgon attack with a very small scar on his face. It must have been a toothless demigorgon. And so the rest of Eleven's arc in these first seven episodes, basically four of these seven, is about her attempting to get her powers back through re-experiencing her past, which is basically a fancy way of saying a bunch of flashbacks. You have some current stuff like the conflict between Dr. Owens and Dr. Brenner, but most of this is about uncovering these secrets from Eleven's past. And I feel like we may have stayed here just a little bit too long, mostly because there was obviously a reveal coming. You don't cast an actor like Jamie Campbell Bauer to be friendly orderly or a guy who's just like on the up and up straight and narrow. You knew there was a twist coming and when they start talking about the mysterious test subject one, it was fairly obvious to me that that was probably gonna be what his role was. Where is he? Maybe we'll save that story for another day. It doesn't have a happy ending, I'm afraid. I do have to say, though, that I was not expecting the twist that one was actually Vecna. And I think part of it was that I really didn't see how those two storylines could interact. And honestly, I think it's a little bit of a stretch. I was on board with everything else. The idea that one was this test subject and that all the other subjects were an attempt to replicate his power and that he did this big massacre. I think that he would have occupied a pretty big spot in Stranger Things mythology if that had been his only role. But this idea that Eleven created Vecna by opening her first portal to the upside down and he gets struck by all this Palpatine lightning and becomes this creature. I don't know, maybe it was the execution. I'm not a big fan of resolving a mystery or a storyline by having a very long expositional monologue because generally that means that they haven't really planted everything that you need to put the story together for yourself throughout the show and instead they just need a character to tell you everything and it was a very long monologue. I became an explorer. I saw my parents as they truly were. But I think it's also very symptomatic of one of my biggest issues with what I think is going to be the show going forward, which is this idea that every single season has to be directly connected to the one before. I was totally cool with Vecna just being this monster 
that's from the Upside Down, because the Upside Down is a crazy place. It's completely believable that there are entities and creatures and things down there that nobody's encountered, because it could literally be the size of this entire world. Nobody really knows. But when they tie him to one and the fact that he's tied directly to Eleven, and Dustin even had this big monologue about the fact that, well, Vecna is actually tied to the Mind Flayer, and he's the five-star general, and he's opening up portals. The Mind Flayer, so if the Demogorgon was just his foot soldier, Vecna's his five-star general. A five-star general with the power to open gates. I kind of liked the idea that the Upside Down was the big bad guy, and I'm assuming that we're building toward the ultimate destruction or some kind of finality with it in the fifth season. I don't think we're going to get there this season, but I just really don't think you need to connect these things as tightly as the show is trying to because it does feel like a stretch, and you're kind of retconning certain things in order to kind of shove a square peg into a round hole. We do still have a lot of story to go, which is why these are concerns of mine. I'm not going to make any kind of final judgment because I don't know what they've got in store for the next close to four hours of story that we still have to go in this fourth season. But there's some trends that I'm not really the biggest fan of right now. And my hope for these last two episodes that we're getting in about a month is also really my hope for the fifth and final season of Stranger Things, which is a return to the core and the heart of the show, which is all these characters together and their interactions with each other. I think what made the show special wasn't this big, grand, overarching epic story, but these characters and the actors who play them their time together and the development of the relationships that they shared over many seasons and many years now. When I look at my least favorite of the storylines this season, namely Hopper in Russia and then everything going on with Mike and the crew on the run, I think the reason I disliked them so much was because we only have a limited time left with these characters and those storylines seemed like placeholders that are basically just biding time until we can get everybody back together. Because we've done this before in seasons past where Eleven will go off on her own or certain characters go off on their own. But every time the show really gets going, when you reunite them all, because they all are very much stronger together and that goes for the show both on screen and off screen. So those are my thoughts on the first volume of Stranger Things Season 4 or Stranger Things 4, whatever you want to call it. What did you think so far? Are you looking forward to these? I say two episodes, but it's really like three episodes worth of material. What was your favorite part of what we've seen so far? What did you think of Vecna and One and the whole tie-in between them? Let me know down in the comments below. And as always, stay tuned here on the channel. I'm going to have box office news for a big Memorial Day weekend coming up very soon. Thank you so much for watching. If you want to see even more of what I'm up to, you can check me out on patreon at patreon.com slash dan merle i'll see you back here in a little over a month to wrap up this season of stranger things until then stay safe and i'll see you next time bye Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.